And I would love to create an imperative in schools that once you've learned something, you are responsible for teaching other people. So it's not just all of us grownups who are responsible for teaching everyone is. This is a learning environment and we celebrate both errors and successful learning. Welcome to Education Rx. The education system in the US is sick and we all need to find ways to heal it. I'm Holly Bronson. I'm Shannon Donaway. Together, we have almost 50 years of experience working as professionals in a school setting. We may not have all the answers, but we're looking for people who have a piece of the solution puzzle. This is Education Rx. So today we are going to talk with Dr. Doug Fisher. He works out in San Diego. He is at SDSU University. He also is part of a group of people who created their own school and he works at the school as well. So he does all kinds of things in education and has been an educator himself for many years. And that school is called Health Sciences High in middle school, I believe now. I'm on their website because I am so interested in seeing what this is all about because I don't know very much about it. Well, and I love that there are so many different charter schools and private schools and different options in education now that can meet individual needs. And so it's cool to see that he is part of creating something like that. And he told us some things in the interview that we will make sure are in our narrative because they were really, really helpful and key. And so look in the narrative. If you hear something in this interview, he's going to give us six things that he thinks are pivotal for students to be really engaged in the learning process. And then he also gives us some really good information about data collection and ways to check in with kids to see if they're engaged. All right. So let's talk to him. That was a great interview. All right. So today we have a great interview for everybody. We are talking to Dr. Doug Fisher. And so I will let you introduce yourself. Sure. I'm a professor in educational leadership at San Diego State, as well as a teacher leader at Health Sciences High, uh, where I provide a lot of coaching and teaching for other teachers and for our students here. I was an early intervention specialist. And as you noted, My original bachelor's degree was in um, speech and language services. Then I got very interested in deaf ed and went into that program. Then I got very interested in teaching the English language arts because a lot of people who are deaf, especially students who are deaf, aren't reading very well. So I got very interested in that. So that's kind of my evolution of my my academic life. Did you ever work as a speech therapist? No. Well, I got my bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. My placement was at a school that was 50% students who are deaf. Ah. So I got very into that in my clinical placement. So I changed, I got my bachelor's degree, speech path, did my clinical hours and all that, and then changed in the master's program. The deaf ed and speech path were the same program. You just had to choose a concentration. So I went teaching instead of clinical. And you mentioned when we were talking before we started recording that When you were working in speech, you noticed that a lot of your students weren't getting to go into general education and you really pushed for that. Yeah. That's awesome. When I was doing my clinical stuff, I was very uncomfortable yanking kids out of class and taking them to a small room because they're missing so much of the natural language, but they needed additional services. And so I um, 
said to the director, you know, I, I don't have even a credential yet. I have nothing. And I said, can't I just do what I'm doing in the classroom? And the director said, no, that would be embarrassing for students. Oh, so I'm like, you don't think it's embarrassing to leave the class and walk down the hall with me and everyone's looking at us. Um, and I said, and by the way, when I'm meeting with my groups, there are no language models because all the kids I have are having a trouble with language. So, so that was my, my frustration with that work and probably why I moved more into deaf ed and learned sign and got into that. Uh, I remember a day where I, there was two kids, I was supposed to take them out and they were doing that volcano where you build the volcano and then it blows up. And while they were with me, the teacher blew up the volcano and those oh. two students were so angry at me because they've been they've been building it for a couple of days and they anticipated it and they walked I walked them back to class and a kid ran up to us and this is like seared in my mind it was so cool it was the best day ever you should have seen the volcano oh and one no. of my left started crying they're so angry at me for missing volcano blowing up and I kept thinking like this is not right imagine all the language that we could have worked on yeah I know articulation's harder in that situation and and sometimes OTPT can be a little bit harder if, it, if it's uncomfortable for a student. But, you know, I kept thinking like, everything I just did over there could have happened in the classroom in a small group, maybe with some language models who could help me. So, yeah, that's my background. That's so awesome. That's the beginnings of inclusion, which mm. I think, you know, clearly this season, we're really trying to talk about that and, and looking beyond just students who have IEPs or special education needs, but even unidentified students or mm -hmm. students that are maybe not getting what they need because of deficits from COVID or maybe socioeconomic issues or whatever, but just making sure that we include all children. And one of the things I saw when I was researching you was that you were just a presenter at the World Summit of Education. Yes. How did that go? That was awesome, but it was virtual. <clears throat> so I didn't actually get to go anywhere in the world. But it's still really cool. <laughs> it's really cool that around the world, we come together and say, what do we know about teaching and learning? What do we know about this process of changing brains so that they have skills and knowledge concepts? And it was just, it was just cool to be part of it and to talk about what, the, what do we know from the evidence and how do we translate you know, research into practice, you know, bench to bedside, you know, lab to, you know, so, that's really, you know, translational stuff is really interesting to me about how do we take the evidence and actually apply it and enact it in ways that are helpful for our students. Right. And I know that one of the, the classes that you were teaching had to do with student-centered learning. Yep. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about that because I know that's an area of expertise for you. Yeah, so I'm interested in, uh, right now I'm calling it teaching students to drive their learning. So, you know, when you're learning to drive, there's a lot of instruction you still have to have. And I, I think teachers and, and support staff and designated instructional services staff are all really important in the learning lives of kids. But I want kids to take responsibility. And so we started doing this review of mostly at psych learning sciences and said, they're like these six things that keep coming up. Students have to know their current level of performance. Now, I know that in some situations, we're embarrassed to talk to kids about where they currently are performing. You know, we don't want them to be, you know, hurt or, and I don't want it to be harsh and I don't want it to be super public. Like here's a wall of all your reading scores or whatever. But 
students should know their current level of performance. The second area is where you're going next. You are more likely to drive your learning and you know self-regulate and you know all that stuff if you see here's where I'm at now, here's where I need to be, and that that goal is worth it. So those are the first two conditions. Third, we look at how do we teach students a range of tools and then have them select those tools. It can be as simple as study skills. Here's all the study skills we know. Which ones work for you? When can you select tools? Uh, over time, then students use the tools their teachers give them to monitor their own progress. When they're monitoring their own progress, they start to seek out feedback from other people. By the way, if you want feedback to actually get in, the best way to get it in is when you ask for it. And so you know, if I give you feedback, you may be immune to that feedback. But if you ask me, so here's what I'm working on, what, what, where can I improve? You are way more likely to accept feedback because you asked for it. And then on the journey, we want students to recognize their own learning and then teach other people. And I would love to create an imperative in schools that once you've learned something, you are responsible for teaching other people. So it's not just all of us grownups who are responsible for teaching everyone is. This is a learning environment and we celebrate both errors and successful learning. And so I, that's kind of what, what, what I'm working on now is how do we enact? How, what changes do we need in the classroom? So we can say to students, here's where you are, here's where you're going, here are some tools, here's how you can monitor, here's how you seek feedback, and here's how you recognize once you've learned something. All of that takes adult behaviors to help young people get there. It can't be me not letting them know what successful learning looks like and holding a, holding a grading criteria in my mind and not being transparent because you can't drive your learning if you don't know what it means to have learned something. Well, and I think one of the things you mentioned talking about letting, how do we teach the tools and letting the students select those tools. And that's something that I know Shannon and I have to do a lot of that with our students when we're working with students who have IEPs and helping them. And one of the things I found as somebody who's, I super geek out on ed tech and I use it quite a bit. And I went and got a master's degree in instructional design and technology to really figure out how to use technology the best possible way mm -hmm. to support learning. And in that, what I have found when I offer these tools and teach these tools to those select few kids that are on my caseload, they won't use it. They won't use it because they're the only ones using it and they look different and they're in elementary, middle, high school. They want to look like everybody else. They want to be like everybody else. And so I found when I went into classrooms and Shannon and I did this a lot in the district we worked in together, went in and taught the whole class how to use some of these tools. And then when everybody was using it or like you were suggesting, when a peer learned how to use it and then helped the other student learn how to use it, yeah. they were so much more likely to engage in it and use it successfully to improve their ability to be independent and really get the information they needed. And that was so powerful. We need to, and inclusion I think includes teachers teaching the whole class those tools and helping the whole class select them. And where, like you're saying, different kids may select different tools, but they're the same tools for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so it's okay if you're using them and somebody else isn't because everybody has access to them. Right. And, and I think I was thinking about some of like your background. So, and I'm, I don't do your work and PTOT, but imagine like not telling the student what the goal is for their PT or OT services. Like, you know, you're bending them or you're stretching them or you're whatever you know, finger motion or grasp or whatever, but you're not telling them why. 
You're not telling them what the goal is. You're not telling them where they currently are and where they should be. You know, your range of motion is here, but it could be here. So it'd be ideal, but I'm not going to tell you any of that. That's not fair. And we do this all the time when it comes to literacy, mathematics, science. We just forget that students need to know, here's where I'm at. Here's where I'm going. Then those tools that you're talking about become highly relevant. And other people using those tools, then I think, well, yeah, of course. When I'm at that stage, I want to use that tool as well. There's students who are really working on sight words. They're high schoolers. They're looking at basic sight words that you know, they, sh- they because of whatever went on with them in the, the past and maybe disability related or whatever. But the other kids already know the sight words. And so it's not embarrassing. The other kids are already practicing these. And so we all do it. And so what does it matter if a peer says, hey, what's this word? What's this word? What's this word? And they all, so if we can involve, like, we're all learning this stuff. Some of us are practicing and some of us are learning. And then in those high school classes, we put really big sight words in photosynthesis, you know, because you can still <laughs> recognize words at sight. They're not just the high frequency words. So we're, we're really rethinking about like, what are all the tools that students need? And they will way more likely accept the tool if they know why they're using it to accomplish what. That is such a good point. Last season, we focused on social emotional learning post COVID and all the trauma that was happening for people. And we interviewed somebody named Kathy Richardson, who was a person who was brought into schools to sort of turn them around when they were struggling. Uh And she used a program, and I don't know if you've heard of it, called The Leader in Me. Yes. Yes. And one of the things that is the same with what you're talking about in that program was that they sat down with every single person in the building, adults all the way through to preschool and kindergartners. What is your goal? Mm-hmm. That's kind of like what you're talking about. Where are you at? What is your level? And where are you trying to get to? Mm-hmm. And let's let you set some of those goals and be active in those goals because then the students take ownership of their social emotional learning and their their behavioral interactions with each other and with themselves in the different settings. And that is so true when you're learning anything. It doesn't matter if it's emotional or if it's literacy or if it's math. So I think that's super powerful. Talk to us about literacy because mm. that is really your golden nugget that you yeah. can share with us. Yeah. So it's really hard to teach that brain to read. And the reality is reading is not genetic and it is not passed from generation to generation. The vast majority of kids will speak and listen. Even terribly abused kids who are locked away develop some some, some oral language, but they don't develop reading and they don't develop reading without pretty thoughtful experiences. Some people, you know, people say, oh, this kid learned to read without instruction and you really analyze it. What did their parents do before, <laughs> when they were four years old or whatever? So reading is really intentional. It's really systematic in terms of instruction. There are, right now we're using the Hollis Scarborough's reading rope as the metaphor. I, I think the rope is reasonable, you know, visual. Of it. It's the strands weaving together that make us strong readers. So we, you know, in the in the word recognition, it starts with alphabetics. Um, we still see, shockingly, teachers do a letter of the week, which means it would take 26 weeks to get to the letters. I still see teachers who teach the letters alphabetically. You know, the first week of school, we're on A, the next week we're on B. There's mm-hmm. so much evidence that this is not effective. 26 weeks of kindergarten to learn your letters. So, so it starts with alphabetics. It moves into, as, as you're developing that, you're developing some more phonological awareness, phoneme awareness, moving into phonics, 
And then fluency, because as you learn to recognize words at sight, because you've seen them over and you know how to decode and the phonology is in your brain, then you started recognizing more words at sight and your fluency starts to grow. And as you're doing that and people are talking to you about what you're reading, you realize you're understanding more of the context of the reading and what it means. And you can start to predict what authors will say and make inferences and stuff. So then we start looking at language comprehension. What's your background knowledge? What's your vocabulary? Uh, <clears throat> what's your ability to engage in verbal reasoning? How are you thinking about literacy processes? Like how do authors work? So if I tell you it's this genre, what does that mean to you? And so, so much goes into this. And I generally believe people, you know, people want to develop strong readers. They just have different levels of knowledge about what it really takes. And then there's the dose function. Like one of my colleagues says, there are people out there who do the salt and pepper approach to phonics, like a little here and a little there. There are other people who it's phonics only, and they don't focus on fluency and other things. So, you know, we have to have better evidence. When I read Tim Shanahan's blog, you know, he, his estimate is from the review that about 30 minutes a day of phonics instruction is going to be necessary in those younger grades. But knowing where the kids are, because if they've already passed that, we don't want to waste their time on that. So some recognition of customization. Let me ask you a question around that, yeah. especially thinking about where we're at right now, which includes all that time that kids were remote. Yeah. And some of them didn't get any instruction during yeah. that time. Yeah. And now we have those third, fourth, fifth grade students that aren't reading at all. Yeah, yeah. Scores coming back with, you know, anywhere from five to 10 points dropped, which is statistically significant. I butchered that. <laughs> and Dr. Ho was telling us kids have lost two to nine months worth of learning, which is pretty significant. Where do you see our students, like some students that are older, when they're coming back in, should we be looking at? allowing them to do some whole world word recognition? Do we have to go back and teach phonetically? Because yeah. So yeah, uh, talk about that. So great because we don't really have good evidence on unfinished learning from a pandemic. So, you know, we're making a, we're, we're, we're extrapolating our best thinking. So I think looking at what is interfering with this reader, is it, is it because you literally did not get any instruction for a year and a half? That's different than you got instruction, but for whatever reason, it didn't work. And what is happening? Do you, if you haven't engaged in sufficient amount of practice and you got good instruction, but there was no time for you to practice it, that's a different intervention than, you know, because to actually read and write well, you need really good instruction and you need opportunities to practice right. and you need feedback on that practice. So some kids had their Zoom meetings, good instruction, good enough instruction, reasonable instruction for the way the world was, maybe I'll say that, but they didn't get any practice. There wasn't systems in place for them to practice. So teaching and learning time dropped to two hours a day or whatever. Uh, the minimum was in the different regions in the country. So practice is different than you got no instruction or the instruction didn't work for you. So I think analyzing a little bit more, I tend to say with those kids, we do a fluency screen. We listen for rate, prosody, accuracy. And then we, 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 we have basically three kinds of like learners when they're that old. So if they have really low rate and they have really low accuracy kind of stuff, there's a different intervention than if they're, they're generally getting it, but they're really slow or they're getting it and they're not slow. And what do we do? With, so I don't think we have 35 different profiles of learners. I think we have a few profiles and 
it should cause us to take action based on those kids. Gotcha. I think we should focus on acceleration, not remediation. I've written about this a lot. Remediation, the characteristics of remediation are we slow it down, we focus on isolated skills. Students often find it boring. Acceleration says we talk about what they need right now based on what their unfinished learning is. And we go fast paced and we cycle back through things multiple times rather than slowing it down and focusing on isolated skill at a time. I'm so glad that you are talking about acceleration in the district I work in. That's one of the points that they're really trying to get across to teachers. And I hear a lot of teachers, and I'll be honest, this was my first instinct too. Acceleration, oh, you want us to do more? You want us to do higher level things? And they can't even get the lower level things? That doesn't mm -hmm. make any sense. And so understanding that acceleration is exactly what you just said. Mm -hmm finding those gaps and pushing quickly and moving through it quickly and making and it painful. And cycle. That is completely cycle. different than what I thought acceleration was. That makes sense. Yeah. What I was thinking does not make sense <laughs> for what we need. And, and so what ends up happening is we end up slowing things down. And mm -hmm. unfortunately this year, I see a lot of lessons that are almost in slow motion because the assumption is I have to go slower for them to get it. And you start to watch students check out of the lesson, bored, especially as they get older, phones are coming out, all the kind of stuff. And once that brain disengages, you're having a really hard time learning anything new. And so then the teacher has to focus on classroom management and stuff. And yes, I, I have, I've watched teachers who are so amazing keeping the pace. One of the things I noticed about people who really keep the pace is they have multiple strategies, tools, to check for understanding in an inclusive way. Some people call that universal response or inclusive response opportunities. You know, they're all writing on their dry erase boards and they all hold it up and the teacher scans the room quickly and decides what to do next. We still can use polls. We can use audience response systems. There's mm -hmm. all kinds of tools we can use, like rate your own level of, us, of understanding from zero to five. There's just so many ways that really effective teachers monitor students' responses not an individual student response as evidence the whole class has learned, but an inclusive response opportunity. So we set a goal here that no more than 10 minutes would go by without some sort of universal response. Nice. So that every 10 minutes or less, students would check in with the teacher, sorry, would check in with the whole class and then make adjustments in the lesson. So if you're getting lots of uh, universal response that shows they're with you, they processed it, they got it, go even faster. Those five are struggling, but the other 30 are fine. You might have customized that lesson. So if we don't have in the moment data, it's hard to really accelerate learning. By the way, pre-pandemic data, so I assume it still holds, but it's pre-pandemic data. On average, 40% of class time is spent on things students already know. Imagine if we could reduce that 40% of stuff they already know and focus on the unfinished learning. Because people are all saying we need more time, You know, we have to reteach third grade even though they're in fourth grade. And we hear this a lot, but what if we could cut down the amount of minutes that students spend on things they've already learned? The only way you can do that as a teacher is to have really good assessment information of what students have already mastered. And yes, this year we're seeing, and last, we're seeing more splinter skills than we saw in the past. We see this is a spike here, but these other things are really low. So when you look at your, your diagnostics and things, and you know, some of the tools that are out there in the US that districts pay for monitoring, 
it's like all these different colors because we don't see the trajectory of like growth that we used to see in 2019. We say green in this one, red in this one, red in this one, yellow, green. So somehow in the last year, they got this skill, but not this one. They got this process, but not this one. If we don't know that, we run the risk of spending our time on things students already know. Now, the other evidence also says we spend between nine and 13% of class minutes with students waiting for something to happen. So that's a ne nearly 50% of our minutes are not productive learning time. Imagine oh, if you cut that down to 20% or 25%. Yeah, you have to take attendance. There's gonna be lessons that run short. I get all that. But imagine if you could reduce the not new learning time for students. Well, and you were saying when you were giving us the six things, and one of the things you were saying was we it's important to help kids check in that they're learning, but also when they're making mistakes and not yes. learning. And one of the things when I was getting my master's degree that we really focused on was the concepts of using gaming yeah. means for learning, because when kids are gaming and I'm thinking everything from board games all the way to your online gaming stuff, your computers, your, you know, playstations, it's okay to fail. They yep. have permission to make mistakes and fail because they know that's part of the learning process to get better at the game. And mm -hmm. in school, we sort of penalize for failure, failure, and that's in quotes, because it's more that trial and error that we all have to do with everything to figure it out, right? And so if we can find ways to give kids permission to make mistakes, yep. and maybe in some of that downtime, if we had using some of it, the, cause there's such cool tools out there now for math, for reading, for all, you know, games where you can play for yep. the alphabet, all that stuff. If we could give them something meaningful to do or stations or options, that to me is part of that inclusive model, that, that universal design model where kids are still working and that time isn't downtime. It's not that lag time, but they're engaging in something and maybe in something that feels playful that gives them permission to make goof ups and make mistakes because they're learning from it. And I think that is super powerful. I think as teachers, when they have those standards for the state and they know that standardized testing is coming and their kids need to pass it, they feel so much pressure that they can't ever have mistakes, but mistakes are so important in learning. Right. right. I'll take the game analogy a little further. The gamers understand that you give people success and then you make it harder. Yes. Oh, you that's start at level point. one. You start at level one for a reason. And when you experience success, it gets harder. So in some classrooms, we start off hard. We don't ever let you ex experience any success. It just starts off at the top level. You know, you're logging in and you're at level 35 and you don't even understand the game yet. That's not very motivational. What's mm -hmm. motivating is I experience success. Now, if a game stays at level one week after week after week, Students stop playing it because the game is no longer a challenge. So part of the reason, part of the entertainment value of those games or gamifying is because it starts off with something you can accomplish. You experience success. Usually you're rewarded with something. You get some coins, you get flashy things happening, and then they make it harder. Yep. And yep. if we could figure out how to allow students to experience success, and then scale it up to so recognize it. You're gonna make mistakes over and over again. It's part of the process of learning. You're gonna make those mistakes. 
And when you've experienced that success, congratulations, amazing, awesome. Now it's harder. And are you finding that a lot of teachers, as you're engaging with the different teachers that you train or when you were doing training on the World Summit, are you seeing a lot of educators in our country and even worldwide agreeing with this, understanding that we've got to make some shift? Because I think maybe we're not giving enough credit to the educators that are out there saying, how do I make this shift? I see that we need it. I think people are working so hard and not always recognizing that they make a difference. And they are. Yes. We are seeing incredible gains. If you look at the data that's coming out of the US, we are accelerating learning. We are closing what were those gaps. And you see it and people are like, wow, the acceleration is faster than we remember it in the past. And we compare it to 19 or 18 or 17. There's some really good data coming out about the power of what teachers are doing. And I think recognizing that if a learner has success, they're going to be more motivated to continue and persevere. And so we should give students, you know, here's a new unit. I'm going to give you something to do that I know you're going to be successful with. Then I'm going to make it harder. And I think when teachers shift that mindset, and I think it's widely happening is because it's, it's, it, no one wants to spend their entire day in class struggling, right? (laughs) And being unsuccessful and feeling stupid. They don't mind it like, oh, I got that one wrong, but it's okay. I'm going to keep working and keep working, keep working. I got success. And I'll say, when you have a breakthrough in your learning, I don't care if you're five or you're 15 or 55, when you have a breakthrough in your learning, that intrinsic thing, that motivation intrinsically cannot compare to a sticker or a grade of A because it feels so amazing to know you did it. You got it. Yes. Yes. I agree with that. What research are you finding that is giving us that good information about that we are starting to climb up that hill? So I'm starting to see some of the iReady data being released nationwide that's showing some acceleration. Achieve 3000 put out a report uh, maybe a month ago, six weeks ago, showing literacy scores are going up and they have, you know, they have millions of kids we're talking about. And so you're starting to see these reports coming out saying there was unfinished learning. I, I don't, I don't like learning loss as a phrase. I think that's a dangerous phrase right. um, to say. It wasn't like they went backwards in time. You know, they didn't forget how to multiply, <laughs> you know, for example. However, the trajectory was supposed to be here and it's a little lower. To me, that unfinished learning, I don't love that learning loss. But you're starting to see people write reports of saying, where we're, where that trajectory was, it's starting to accelerate. The, the line is going up. Now, these companies are millions of kids, so it's averages. So are there some kids who are really struggling? Yes. Are there kids who have mental health needs that are having a hard time at school? Yes. But on average, we are seeing teachers working really hard to accelerate the learning and address the unfinished learning in the students. And young people are super resilient. If they have really good experiences and and are loved and cared for and they feel safe, they're going to learn. Absolutely. I think the worry is a bunch of teachers coming together and talking about, well, they're so far behind. There's all this unfinished, uh, there's all this learning loss and all this because it's demoralizing. And I worry that when you spend all the time on the gaps, yes, you start to wonder if you have any possibility of addressing it. And when you're demoralized, when you don't feel like you have any impact, it's hard to go to work. And I want educators to know 
yeah, we had a pandemic. There's nothing we could do about this. We did the best we could with what we had. And look what we're doing now. And by the way, so the effect size of COVID on learning was minus 0.13. So 0.13 minus effect size. That's pretty minimal. Summer, taking the summer off has a larger effect size than COVID. Oh, that's good information. Yes, it was a learning loss. I mean, technically they, the achievement decreased by 0.13. The effect size is not that big. I believe it's not that big because of the heroic efforts of teachers. That, and I know that this is on average, by the way, and there are kids who had disproportionate impact during COVID. I totally get that. I know equity gaps were exacerbated, I, but on average, there have been three meta-analyses now on the impact of COVID. And the average effect size is minus 0.13. It's, it's unfortunate, but it was why wasn't it minus 0.3 or minus 0.4? When you're bored in school, the effect size is minus 37. Oh, wow. You're bored in school. Taking the summer off is in the 20s. So it's relatively comparatively minor, although it did occur. And I really believe it occur- it, the effect was so on average minimal is because of the amazing efforts that teachers did. That really does put it in perspective when you look at it like that. Yep. yep. I think that's such a good thing to hear because everybody has been exhausted and everybody has felt like all we're hearing is we have to make up these gaps. And so it's good to know that we're doing it. We're making up those gaps. We're doing it. And I think it's nice. It's almost sometimes when you have this craziness that happens like COVID or another situation, maybe looking at other generations when they had wars and whatever, it gives you a chance to kind of clean the slate and just do something different. And I think it's putting people in a mindset of, okay, let's just mix it up and try different things. And that is a good thing. And I think one of the things we need to throw into that mix is how about if we start really honoring teachers for the important work that they are doing because the children of today are the leaders of tomorrow. We try and bring in all the time. And so what their job is, is one of the hardest, most important jobs. And as a culture, could we really elevate that and honor them for that? Because it's hard work. It is hard work. And if you don't think you're making a difference, having an impact, it's even harder work. Yes. That's probably why we had so many people leave last year, especially. Yes. In the great resignations, because they didn't feel like we're having an impact. They felt like, there's nothing I'm doing that's making a difference. So why am I doing this job? And, and I think that's really hard on our profession because we are having an impact. And so look at the win for the week. Look at the win for the day. And, and I think teachers give away their impact all the time. They explain it away. Mm-hmm. Oh, this kid has mm-hmm. a great family and great support. And it was my team. You know, it's my team. or It's the, you know, my principal did this. No, you did it. Take a little bit of credit for what we're seeing happening in school. And I think we're socialized to say, oh, you know, it's the kids. They worked really hard. You know, it was our team. Our team's really good. It's the parents. They really helped me. (laughs) But it's because of you. You mobilized the team. You led the lessons. You got the parents involved, whatever it is. And I, I feel like we're not encouraging teachers to take a little bit of credit for the awesome things that are happening. And so they start to ask themselves, is what I'm doing making any difference? 
Well, and just like their students need some success, yep. can handle some failure as long as they are overall having success. Our That's teachers right. need to feel that too. And you know what, teachers, there's nothing wrong with saying, I did that. That's right. I did a good job. I made this difference. You yep. did take credit for that. That's right. The hard part right now for me is around attendance. Yes. I need help from administrators, <clears throat> district office and stuff. We have to figure out how to get kids back in school on a more consistent, regular basis. And yes, I know there's all these new illnesses going around right now in San Diego, some sort of version of RSV or something like that. So kids are out. But I also hear, I didn't feel like going to school. You know, it was, I had my, I, I stayed home with my brother. You know, we hear all these other things. And, and we know attendance counts and, and the impact it has on learning. And I don't think as a country, we've really, in, we, we really need to take on attendance and be, we need your kids back in school, back in school on a regular basis, because there are services for them, including mental health services, related services, food services, yes. being loved and cared for. We need your kids back in school. Yes. And you know, we're actually getting ready to do well toward the end of this season, we're doing an episode with somebody who has done a ton of research and projects around absenteeism. Excellent. It is a huge issue. Yep. And do you see any districts or any schools that are doing a really good job of increasing attendance or keeping kids in school? Have you do you have any examples to? Not really. We're trying no. really hard. Um, at our little school, we're trying really yeah. hard. We meet every single day on student attendance. We have a standing meeting. We have an attendance clerk, an attendance staff member. We hired wow. a social worker um, wow. and the leadership team. We meet every single day to profile kids, call families every day. Our attendance has creeped up. We're higher than the average in the in the region, but it's okay. still lower than it was in 2019. Wow. Yeah. Huh. And I think that is happening nationwide. I yes. think it is not just San Diego, because I know in New Mexico, where I'm at, I know in Colorado, where Shannon's at, I know Texas, where our absentee expert, Sharon Bradley, is at. Yes, it is a problem. Yep. And and I think it's not just the students. I think it's also a parental mindset, yep. Yep. And a cultural mindset where we kind of, you know, it was easier when we didn't have to worry about fighting with our kids to get them up and out yep. the door that's right. <laughs> you know, during COVID. So, right. yeah. And that's why, I mean, it can't be a teacher in a school. It has to be a system that takes on attendance yes. and we re-communicate to kids and their families. It's important that you're here and you're here every day. And it's, it's demoralizing for teachers because now these five are absent. They're going to be gone for a couple of days. Now I have to catch them up and remember their work. And then I have to do this one with this. It's it's contributing to the stress that teachers experience mm -hmm. is sure. continually trying to catch people up because of attendance. So if attendance is one of the top three things we need to really focus on to not just get back from pre-COVID where we were at, but to really just move forward. I mean, forget about COVID. How are we moving forward as a country with our education? Mm -hmm. So absenteeism is definitely one we need to address. Give me two more that you think are really pertinent to helping us go, go forward and make gains. I think student engagement needs a new look. And I think, so the way I phrase engagement now is around students driving their own learning and actually teaching engagement, cognitive engagement as part of our lessons, that we talk with students about what it feels like in your brain when you're engaged and what are the behaviors you need to do to get that to happen in your brain that you engage. 
And there's also really interesting research on nine reasons, nine cognitive challenges to learning that I really like. And like one of them is on multitasking. When you multitask, you're not learning. Cognitive overload, lack of transfer. I mean, these people put together a really nice things around what are the barriers, cognitive barriers to learning. So I think we need more work on that. I think that would be a, another jump for our school system. So I would say attendance, engagement, which I would say more driving learning, not manipulating kids and getting mad at them and right. punishing them. That's not what I mean by engagement. A third, we're gonna have to rethink our assessments. Kids learned how to do to game all kinds of assessments during COVID. ChatGPT <laughs> has contributed to now people are all angry with this. I was interviewed a couple of days ago about ChatGPT. And I said, you know, in 1900s, in the early 1900s, the big controversy was chalkboards are going to ruin schools. <laughs> and there were journal articles published on chalkboards are going to ruin schools. So yeah. no, ChatGPT is not going to ru ruin schools. We have to figure out what to do about it. Yes. Assessment. If you can Google it easily, it's probably not a good assessment item anymore. And so I think way back, Ralph Tyler, I think 1946 said, what do you want your students to learn and what evidence will you accept that they learned it? Now, I think we're pretty good at what we want them to learn. I think we're struggling now with lots of technology and Google and chat GPT and cell phones and all this stuff, phone a friend. What evidence will we, will we accept that they learned it? So mm -hmm. I think that's a third area we really need to think more about. Well, and when you were providing some information about where you were getting the data that were making improvements, you mentioned iReady, you mentioned Achieve 3000. I know iReady is a curriculum. It is inbred into that curriculum that you use where you can take those tests and you can yeah. see where you're at. And one of the things we were talking about when we were talking with Dr. Ho was that annual standardized testing that we do where we pull kids out of classes and they have to sit for a couple hours and take tests online. And we were, and he was telling us that that really stems from people in our nation, not trusting the teachers to be That's teaching right. and right. kids to be achieving. Yep. But now we have these new curriculums that are technology-based that have standard, you know, whatever the state and national standards are built into the curriculum where it's taking those tests are part of the process. What is your stance on, could we start having some national conversations about stopping annual standardized oh, testing? Yes, we need, <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the worry is when you stop it, then, you know, it gets to be chaos again. Like I say, if the test is worth teaching to, then teach to the test. If the test is not worth teaching to, then it's a waste of time. You know, if you want to drive in the state of California when you're 16, you have to pass a test. Mm -hmm. And it's got knowledge on it that's going to keep the rest of us safe, right? Because then you know the rules. So what I worry about is a lot of the assessments are not worth teaching to and the reason they're being used. Right. I wish we would focus more on student progress, which would mean we'd have to have longitudinal data. Is this school? not this teacher, is this school having an impact on this learner across time? That's where I wish we'd go. I'm not afraid of assessment data. I think it's useful to help us think about where students have already been and then where to next. What I worry about is we're beating up people, schools, individual teachers with this moment in time data as, you're, as the person you had on said, you know, and there's all kinds of things. I was stressed. You know, we, we hear stories of kids throwing up at the test because it's so stressful. We hear, I mean, you hear all of this, 
and the energy that goes into it and the money that goes into it. And so how do we ensure? So here's an interesting side to that. In California, that we used to test high school subjects every year, every subject. So there was a history test, a science test, et cetera. And the state got rid of that. And all of a sudden you started seeing reports that in history classes, it was the wild west again, as they said. That's what the report said. You could teach anything you want because no one was checking. So if you did not like this unit and you prefer teaching this for nine weeks, it's okay. Because so I worry that that's our mindset is that tests are used to control teachers. Mm-hmm. And so how do we ensure this, that students have access to the curriculum that the government says this is what we're going to learn in this grade level? And not a moment in time where we're beating up people and telling schools they're failing. And I think we need a whole national, like what's next in the assessment accountability realm for that. Now, have you heard of Eric? I'm going to try and get this last name right. Hanushek? Yeah, Hanushek. Yeah. Thank you. I I always feel like I'm saying it wrong. Hanushek. I watched a video on his website where he Uh was saying... One of the main things we need to look at to really reform education is rewarding the teachers that are being successful and getting rid of the teachers who are not being successful. Hmm. And I'm definitely bringing that down. I'm boiling it down to a point. And and he had a lot more to say around that. There's a lot. But he was also citing different states and districts that did this. So the teachers that were you know, meeting the standards and getting kids really succeeding and engaged in the learning that they should be given bonuses or, you know, extra ways that they're rewarded for that hard work. And then the teachers that just are like, I'm, I'm not going to do anything else. This is, I'm only doing the minimum. Well, we should offer them to leave. I, I go back and forth because I feel like, yes, we need to figure out how to really encourage teachers to be on their game. There are plenty of people who go into this profession because they think summer's off or, and and then they're surprised because it's not an easy profession. It's not not a cakewalk in any way. Uh, And summer's off. Most teachers are working second jobs. So (laughs) I don't know that they really get summers off, but I think there's gotta be some system. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what that would be. I have no expertise in that. And I know that what Dr. Hanshek was saying is, so much more in depth than what I'm saying right, right here. So I don't want to want to misquote him and I don't right. want to, you know, but I think he's on to something we've got to figure out. And I think it's, it's such a bigger question, right? Like we need to make our education programs and universities more intense. We need to pay teachers a better rate so that it's more competitive. There's so many things that are going to go into that. But when we're talking about getting rid of potentially finding a way to get rid of all this extra testing that, is it good? Is it bad? I feel like it kind of tilts toward the bad, mm-hmm. not being positive. How do we do that and keep teachers really on the right track? Yep. Give me some insight into that because I'm not claiming to have answers. And people listening, I'm not trying to say, let's get rid of teachers. That's not it at all. But we got to figure something out. So give right. me give me your two cents. So <laughs> we used to talk about Finland being the top performing country in the world. They're not anymore, but they were. And so I said, you cannot fire your way to Finland. (laughs) I love it. We have no evidence that simply firing people is going to get outcomes like Finland. 
<laughs> what are the things that we know about their school system and what do we not know about their school system? That's interesting to me. One of the things, so, so the logic of firing teachers, if you take it to the extreme, then we'll, we'll say, well, if you're going to say these teachers get rewarded and then these teachers are dismissed, why wouldn't then people start saying that about our students? And if you don't say it about the students, you shouldn't say it about the grownups. And I don't think anyone would say, you know what? We're going to reward these students. And we're going to kick these out. They, they don't get school anymore for whatever, because they're <laughs> behind and below grade level. So I think it'd be very careful to apply what we wouldn't do to young people, to the adults that support them. Do some teachers need to grow? Of course they do. What are the systems that we put in place to have honest performance reviews and say, here's an area of growth. I may not going to do a laundry list, but here's an area of growth. <clears throat> and we need to have you get better. We don't just fire people. Don't just like we don't fire our students. We are honest. And I think as, as a teacher, I had many years that the performance review was not honest. I had a review one time, the principal never was in my room. And mm -hmm. I had to sign my review at the end of the year. What goals do you have? What do you want to work on? And I'm like, okay, here, bye. <laughs> so we have to get to performance review. Some principals have way too many people to work with. It's not reasonable. There's no, like in business, you don't have 126 direct reports. You have people that it nests, right? So, and if you have 126 direct reports in business, you're probably not giving them a lot of growth producing feedback. Sure. That's a lot of people. Yeah. But I know principals have 126 teachers. It's just them. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? And run a small city at the same time, you know, because it's not just the teaching workforce. It's the paraprofessional workforce. It's the classified staff. It's the budget. It's the parents. So yeah. I think honest performance reviews and being clear about growth, where we're going next, and it's okay to make mistakes, and we're seeing progress. And you know what? If people have honest performance reviews, they might decide, this is not for me. They, they may decide that. But as long as we're making progress and saying, I'm trying to be the best educator I can be, we should honor that. And in that, do you feel like this is my observation. Now, again, I'm a special service provider. I'm not a teacher, but I'm watching and working in classrooms quite a bit. And I see teachers get either new curriculum or new strategies or new practices almost every year. So right yep. when they're finally getting a groove with it, yep. it gets shifted. Yep. And one thing that I heard that I thought was really beautiful from another person we interviewed, they said, can you take the directives and the programs you're already using and use those toward, yeah. we were interviewing Dr. James Robinson and he goes around and trains teachers in schools right. how to get more inclusive. He said, can you take what you've already got and use that toward mm -hmm. you know, your goal? And I think as educators, I watch teachers be like, well, I just finally figured out how to teach this curriculum and now we're getting a new curriculum. Yep. We gotta stop that. Right. <laughs> yeah, we don't change the workplace tools for most people in, in the world but we do that a lot to teachers. Oh, that's hard. And this, this month's new innovation, this month's new innovation, this shiny over there, you know, we're, we seem to be in the pursuit of the magic bullet, the, the potion that fixes everything, rather than the experiences we designed for learners, monitoring their progress, helping them notice when they learn things. It's, it's actually not that complicated. It's, Say it again. Say that right. again. So, how do you design good learning experiences? How do you monitor the progress learners make and teach them to monitor it and then celebrate their successes? I mean, it's so there's a, each of those could be unpacked into like 
what are the bad experiences and good experiences that we can design for learners? But, you know, <clears throat> learning means change. So have, have I planned a series of experiences for you to be changed from them? And if I did, are you monitoring your progress? Am I monitoring your progress? Am I making adjustments? In it? And then when you accomplish something, we celebrate it and we move to the next thing. We know a lot about teaching. We know there's a huge body of research about what works and what doesn't work. The thing is, there's not just one right way to teach. And what I see some administrators do is they come in because they were effective as teachers. They now are promoted to administrators and they want everyone to look like them and teach just mm -hmm. like they do. And there's so many right ways to teach. There's, you cannot find evidence that says, here is the way we should teach. You can find evidence of bad things to do, but you can't find evidence that this is the way to teach. What we have to look at is our impact. Did the experiences we design contribute to the learning of our students? And if not, change the design because you can't change the learners. That I think is excellent point. And I think that is the first time I've heard somebody boil it down to something that we could be consistent with, yeah. no matter what the curriculum is, no matter what your directives are in your district. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I know you're a super busy guy, and I really appreciate that you gave some time to talk with us. And we are really hopeful that people listening got Thank as much you. out of it as I know I just got. I Thank learned you. a lot, and I, I love the I love your perspective on things, and I love the hopefulness that you're sharing because oh, we all need to feel that right now. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, I took a couple pages of notes, so excellent. You have to go back and reread those. And thank you. All right. Well, that was a great interview. Dr. Doug Fisher shared so many things with us that may even surprise some of our listeners. Well, and I love that he was super flexible about our conversation. We definitely brought him in because of his literacy expertise and his expertise in student-driven learning or student-focused learning. And he had some great points about that, but he had a lot of good knowledge and ideas about other things as well. Yeah, I really found it interesting. I, I want to look up some more of the research that he was citing about how we're actually making quite good gains. You know, the kids, students are really on a good trajectory. Well, and knowing that the NAEP scores that came back in late 2022 felt very overwhelming and we did start this season talking about that because it's important for us to know not, not everybody's experience is the same. So this is sort of the launching point we're at, but it's good to hear. And I love that he was saying, teachers take ownership when you are successful and your kids are successful because we need that hope and we need that positive reinforcement that we're making some gains and winning. Well, I thought it was interesting how he put the teachers exactly in the same place as the students, saying that they're not getting the positive feedback that we're that students aren't getting as well, and which is motivating to keep going. We all need positive feedback to do our jobs, to learn, to just keep going. Well, and parents and students and educators that maybe aren't in the classroom hear that and give some positive reinforcement <laughs> to those teachers because they work so darn hard. Everybody needs it. We all need it. Well, we're going to make sure in our narrative that goes along with the podcast, the written portion, we're going to have the six points that he gave about students give, being able to drive their own learning. And then we're also going to include the reading rope information and the nine cognitive pieces for learning and engagement. 
So we're going to add all of those things so that you can find them. There'll be links and so on. He was an excellent interview. I love his positive attitude. I love his take on uh, standardized testing. We keep bringing it up. It's sort of become a natural theme for where we're at and how education is shifting. So just really good information. I love it. Yeah, it was really fun. So we have coming up some excellent interviews. We have Will McCoy and Regan Rogers coming, and they're going to be talking to us about how to make quick changes when you're trying to implement new strategies, how to sort of microwave those strategies and get them really going quickly and getting everybody involved. That's going to be a great interview. We have Sam Carey from the new EdTech Classroom coming up, and he's going to talk about the Next Generation Teacher program that he and his business partner have started through their agency. And it is powerful and so cool. And we're also going to be talking talking with Dr. Nogura. You know, he's going to correct me. And I know I'm butchering this last name. He is excellent. He is such a good resource for equity in the classroom. He is gives advisement to different states and their superintendents and their state secretaries of education about how to be inclusive. So he's going to have some great information as well. We also down the line have an awesome interview coming with Sharon Bradley about absenteeism. And we talked about it in this interview. So really good things coming. People, you need to definitely tune in for each of those. Yes, they're going to be some great interviews. I am learning so much this season. It is awesome. Me too. Well, Shannon, what do we always say? Together, Together, we we can can do better. better. All right, guys, we'll see you next week. Don't miss it. Bye.